You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. This is David Grubbs, Professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas, and I'm hosting today. Uh, This is also our uh, concluding episode of this semester's season. Um, We'll have uh, special summer episodes, I'm I'm assuming, Um, but this is... uh, this is the end of weekly goodness. Um, Can you believe we've been doing this for four school years? I know, right? That 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 uh, unbelieving voice in the background there. <laughs> unbelieving? That that doesn't sound right. Skeptical. Yes, that skeptical voice in the background is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English, assistant, associate, assistant professor. I, of I English. appreciate the promotion, David. You're welcome. Assistant <laughs> Professor of English at uh, Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Um, also with us is Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you today, Michael? I'm pretty good. Getting ready to get on a plane tomorrow and go down to Georgia to graduate. Awesome. Uh, and you're going to wear your regalia pretty much constantly after that? Uh, it's. I'm looking at it right now. In fact, it's hanging on my office door. Cool. You got one of those puffy hats. You know, I got the uh, four-sided one because I read that they look better on heavyset people. <laughs> but now I'm afraid it looks too much like a mortarboard, so I may have to order a different hat. Uh, I don't want anybody uh, to think I just have a master's degree. Now let me ask you this, Michael: Are you going to wear it in Crown's graduation before? Before you actually graduate? I did. I wore it on Saturday uh, in Crown's graduation. I believe there's a picture of me on Facebook with a student. Oh, okay, okay. would like and to see, see what it see, looks like. And see, here, here's the awful thing, Michael. Uh, I saw the four-cornered hat, and I assumed that was your master's robe. Well, now I'm going to have to get another one. <laughs> your fear has come upon you. <laughs> so, I didn't yeah, even think about it when I ordered just- it. The, the that's website not to worry. The, the, the website just said that large people look better with the four corners rather than the six or eight. And I said, okay, I guess I'll Wait, have to uh, order another The one. website said that? Uh-huh. Like, like the place that you actually order your regalia from said I that. believe so. That's funny to me. Well, you know, you, you have all these choices and there's no, there's no standard. Right. I mean, there's got to be some kind of standard. A four, six, or eight-cornered hat. Oh, I mean, oh, it, it doesn't look like a mortarboard on the top. It, it, it's it's puffy. <laughs> okay, it, it just has something of the same uh, silhouette, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't okay. go as far down on your head as a mortarboard does. You know, you know how mortarboards are. Yeah, they're. they're yes, I'm not looking forward to wearing one of those in commencement. Coming Onward, up. this conversation can't possibly be interesting to anyone. 
<laughs> okay, yeah, so let's change the topic. Uh, any any particular things you're looking forward to as your semester is drifting to an end, Nathan? Oh, just getting this grading done with. Uh, although, as soon as I get that done, and probably before I get it done, because grades aren't due until Tuesday, I will have started a an intensive uh, summer philosophy course that I start teaching here on Monday. So when this Dude. drops, I'll be in the second day of it. Awesome. Well, that'd be fun. Um, I, I'm, there's a little bit of celebration going on in, uh, in, in my wing of the school at the moment because our, uh, our school arts magazine, um, arrived from the printer today. So we're, we're pretty, pretty pumped at, uh, how it's turned out. And since that's kind of my baby, um, I am pleased with myself more than usual. We'll shifting from our news to news of listeners. Um, what kinds of feedback have we gotten uh, since since last we spoke? We've become minor internet celebrities. I mean, even three of us a, a, li- a little more major than I guess we were. We're still minor, but <laughs> uh, the current issue of Books and Culture, the Christian version of the New York Review of Books. <laughs> basically, has an article by, uh, is he, he's the head of Fuller, is that right? Yeah, he, yeah. Un, until June, he is the president of Fuller Seminary, at which point I believe he's retiring as an administrator. Richard Mao wrote an article about evangelicals purposely misreading Plato, in which he quotes Nathan with some approval for his taking Brian McLaren to task back in the infant days of the blog. <laughs> So that was very exciting. And then over on First Things Blogs, uh, we were, well, I was taken to task by uh, (laughs) one of our uh, listeners uh, for a perhaps squirrely reading of Martin Luther. Uh, However, in that same essay, uh, Captain Thin, also known as Matthew Block, if you look for his uh, post there on First Things, Praise David Grubbs for a skillful and uh, intelligent reading of the same Martin Luther. So David is the hero over on First Things. And David, you tell him about Wikipedia. Yeah, on, on Wikipedia, if you go to the uh, Christian Existentialist or, or, uh, Christian Existentialism article, yep, um, you will note that our very own Michael Farmer has no less than three, I think it was three at the last count, citations uh from his uh religious existentialism series that he did was that last years year, ago. two years ago no no it yeah, was like 2009 yeah oh wow okay well it's on so, first humanist is it not it is yeah yeah okay yep. so also in the infant days of the blog <laughs> right uh, back back when even i was blogging <laughs> and I, I must say that i did not do that I am no. uh, I am arrogant, but I am not that arrogant. <laughs> so uh, I don't so, know okay. if our listeners were thinking I did it, but I did not do it. I assume one so, of our listeners did. We're all decidedly bush league still, but we're we're, yeah. we're oh we're oh <laughs> oh you mean you wrote the blog post, but you did not include those citations into Wikipedia. That is right. Yes, no, we would not be touting this if if we knew that Michael had put it there himself. We would. <laughs> We would be shaming him, actually, kind of. You know, I had no. a student in my existentialism class in the fall look up uh, St. Augustine and existentialism on Wikipedia, 
and she said she was thinking to herself, this sounds exactly like what Professor Farmer was saying about uh, Augustine and existentialism. Well, there's a good reason for that. (laughs) That's great. So, um, you know, thanks, anonymous Wikipedia writer person. Um, Right. I mean, do you think things will will ever get to the point where you can uh, list Wikipedia references in your "I was cited in this" list? I on your sure view? hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I have yeah. written a brief email to Doctor Mao thanking him for the citation in Books and Culture. Did he write back? Not yet. I just sent it today. So, oh, okay. I'm sure he's a busy man. Oh, I I can't imagine otherwise. Well, I certainly hope so, because then we'll have reason to talk about this again. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what counts as minor celebrity, dear listeners. Um, yeah. So, anyway, I, I'm just pumped that Lutherans like the way I read Lutheran, or at least a Lutheran likes the way I read Luther, not being one myself. Anywho's, um, anything else we want to point to before we shift to our amazing and wonderful topic? Uh, the Dante series continues to roll. Hopefully I'll be finishing that up before this episode drops. Uh, Brandon is reading along faithfully and commenting along. Listeners, you're all invited to join us on a walk through purgatory. Uh, also, Michael, can I announce the uh, Gautamer project for the summer? Yeah. Uh, this summer, listeners, and I'm going to be posting this on the Facebook page probably before this episode goes online, uh, Michael and I will be reading through Truth and Method by... Uh, Georg Gadamer, and I'm pretty sure I mispronounced that, but that's okay. Uh, We are going to try to blog through it together, and if you are someone who's inclined to read difficult philosophical hermeneutics and purchase a book for a few shekels and join us in that endeavor, or even better, if you are, oh, I don't know, the host of a progressive theology podcast, I I don't know, named (laughs) after a certain brewing process, uh, and you want to chime in with us, uh, we would welcome any involvement from our listeners as we do that. So look for further news on that. Uh, Truth and Method is the name. Gautamer is the author, and we'll be blogging through it this summer. Cool. We sure know um, how to have a good time, don't we? Hey, man, we're, we're, we're party animals. <laughs> but let's think of it as a very, very, very niche market good time. I can live with that. <laughs> I think I reviewed well, a book a few years ago suggesting that if uh, readers are like me and don't like to have a good time, they could read this book on the beach. But I can't remember what book it was. I just remember being <laughs> proud of that line. That is a good line. I like it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to you finishing your your, uh, your purgatory series, Nathan, because if you don't finish it, then it's just hell. There you go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with with that out of my way, um, yeah, we announced this last time that uh, we would be uh, thought we were going to be recording on um, May Eve, which is um, in some corners of the world Walpurgisnacht, uh, which has an association with the Sabbaths of witches and so forth. Um, unfortunately, things got complicated, and we didn't record then. But hey, we're sticking with the topic. So, which is today? Um, this is a sticky topic, you know, being, you know, 
the Christian Humanist podcast. You know, whenever you talk about Christians and witches in the same breath, there's bound to be some kind of uh, complication to addressing the topic. So we're going to just take that bull by the horns. Um, I'm going to pitch this at you, Nathan. Um, we have a book in our faith, um, which uh, we, we aim to follow as best we can. And if we're going to take seriously what the Scripture says about witches, I figure we ought first to understand what on earth um, the, word, the word that gets translated as witch in my Bible meant in the ancient Near East. Uh, the only witch story I know of in the Bible is the one with, you know, Saul in it. But I imagine there are probably some other passages worth mentioning. So uh, if you could talk us through that, I would appreciate it. All right. Well, first of all, uh, the person that Saul encounters in Endor uh, is neither a uh, an Ewok nor a witch. Uh, <laughs> but rather, I mean, the text simply refers to her as a woman. Now, it does later on say that she is one who can command... Uh, some sort of spirit, and this is one of those places where Hebrew philology is of limited use, I have to admit, uh, because what you've got is a lot of words that do not appear in a lot of other passages. So mm. as best we can tell, the woman at Endor is pretty specifically a necromancer, uh, someone who summons the spirits of the dead. Now, what's fascinating mm. about this story, and I want to talk about this before I get bogged down in other philological matters, uh, is that magic in the ancient world is almost always a subversive power. Uh, so those who are not possessed of the official mechanisms of power, whether it be military power, economic power, so on and so forth, will sometimes go, well, my New Testament professor in seminary called it an end around. Uh, hmm. They would, instead of trying to go through the normal defensive line of worldly power, they would go around it by means of magic. Uh, so what Saul has to do, and this is interesting, he is arguably the most powerful man in Israel at the moment, uh, but he has been cut off by God. So what he has to do in this story is to find out um, what God has to say to him on the eve of a great battle against the Philistines. Since God is not talking to him, he actually goes to a necromancer uh, and the Bible stop, pauses there to say, oh, and by the way, Saul had expelled all of the necromancers from Israel by this point. Uh, but he finds, you know, sort of a back alley necromancer uh, and asks her to summon the spirit of Samuel because he knows that even if God is not talking to Saul anymore, God is more than likely talking to Samuel. So when the spirit of Samuel comes up, uh, what you've got is this bizarre situation i mean i it, it's hard even to put a label on this relationship where saul is doing something forbidden by the official cult of israel by the torah of moses in order to get the god of israel to talk to him by summoning up his old enemy from the grave it, it's just a little bit too weird and i mean every time i read this story i, I just come away scratching my head now mm. Other bits of the Bible that we need to talk about in Exodus, the Torah of Moses, it does uh, say that you shall not allow a, basically a chanter to live. And, you know, in the ancient world, again, in order to exert magical powers, generally what one did was to chant the names of lesser spirits, dark spirits. So one who chants in such a way must be put to death within Israel. Um, 
other than that, I mean, you know, really what you get are sporadic mentions in the prophets and other sorts of places where you have people again in hidden places, usually summoning up these, uh, I'll say disembodied powers to give them a category that are not the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, really in the old Testament, uh, what you've got is something similar to what you've got in other Near Eastern religions, namely a prohibition of the exertion of power over these spirits that are not God. Mm. So, th- so this is not unique to the law of Moses. Oh, not I mean, by any means. No, 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 no. I mean, in Babylonian texts that we've got, Ugaritic texts, uh, we've definitely got mentions of magic. Uh, and specifically, you know, this idea that persists in a lot of them that summoning the name of this or that deity, calling it by its true name rather than the commonly, you know, known name of the spirit exerts a kind of power over it. And a lot of people have noted that in the Old Testament, to go back there for a second, uh, first of all, the prohibition of speaking the name of Adonai in vain might be connected to that danger of witchcraft. And second of all, the fact that when uh, Yaakov is wrestling with the being uh, in Genesis, the reason that he won't give him his name is so that he won't have that magical power over him. So, I mean, it's Hmm. definitely something that, even if it's not mentioned explicitly in a whole lot of places in the Old Testament, it's part of the atmosphere there, the idea that there are disembodied spirits that can be commanded if you have uh, a certain body of knowledge to do something with them. Hmm. I was just thinking of Rumpelstiltskin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That certainly draws on the same dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are, are there any, in, in those other cultures, are there, are, are you know, if, if you wandered outside of Israel, would everybody be like, Okie dokie with witches, or no, not by any means. And in fact, uh, that's one of the things just about every official state cult forbids witchcraft, largely oh. because they want to be the conduit through which people get to the gods, right? So, uh, the code of Hammurabi doesn't like witches too much. Uh, you know, I'm and you know, now I'm drifting into more Greek and Roman era, but I mean, you just about every mention of witches that you get in the ancient world is one of fear. Uh, and really, I mean, almost universally prohibition. Hmm. Now there are, uh, let me, and let me back up just a second. And this is going to sound odd to our modern ears. Uh, but there are official state sorcerers, which is an odd category. I realize, <laughs> uh, but generally those are separated from the sort of renegade, usually women witches. Mm. So for instance, when Moses goes to the court of Pharaoh, there are official state sorcerers, but those generally wouldn't be considered the same as witches. Something closer to, Oh, I don't know. Like, like the consulting astrologers that corporations hire in Japan. Right. Or, I mean, to bring it, I mean, a little bit, you know, it's it's a little bit of a stretch, but I think it's analogous. It would be something like a government nuclear weapons lab versus a government weapons lab run by an anti-government militia. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> our own bomb factory versus... Yeah, exactly. I mean, they don't want <laughs> private citizens to have the power of the gods. Fair enough. 
that they, they don't have some kind of, so so witches are are some kind of uh, I don't know supernatural Second Amendment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, except there is no Second Amendment in the ancient world. I mean, you know, the state wants to have a monopoly on military force and a monopoly on magical force. Neat. Um, sorry, that's that's my immediate reaction is, is imagining <laughs> imagining a state with a monopoly on actual right. So, in other words, there very well might have been in ancient Egypt a ministry magic, of magic. Yeah, I, I'm not <laughs> entirely sure how much of it I believe. <laughs> yeah, you, you knew you knew what direction my mind was moving. Oh, I knew exactly where you're going, Grubbs. I... The, the Ministry of Magic. Awesome. Well, you kind of already pointed us towards Greece and Rome, um, and uh, I'll let you uh, take us there all the way, Michael. Um, what kind of, uh, what kinds of witches uh, do the do the classical world divvy up to us? Well, the most famous. Um is probably Hecate, who is not actually a witch, but a goddess who is heavily associated with witchcraft. Mm. And, you know, she's associated with the sorts of animals that follow witches around. In the in the case of the Greeks, it's not black cats, but dogs and skunks, of all things. Skunks? Yeah. Um, she huh. is associated with poisons, because, of course, one of the things witches would have done was make these potions out of plants... Um, she is associated with doorways and boundaries, kind of signifying something Nathan was getting at, I think, this tendency of witches to exist on the outskirt of official society. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is invoked not just in ancient mythology, but she's invoked a couple of times in Shakespeare as well, which is where I became aware of her, uh, by women who were trying to... Uh, not too much t- at this point, Michael. <laughs> What's that? I said not too much Shakespeare at this point, Michael. Well, you've already tried to scoop me with the classical <laughs> stuff. Um, then then we have at least two notable human witches. Uh, Medea, who, mm. who of course becomes Jason's wife after murdering most of her family and helping him to get the Golden Fleece. And then uh, when he, you know, again, depend, you know, there's no official version for most of these myths. So depending on the version of the myth you read, she at the very least uh, kills him, maybe kills her children as well, maybe kills herself. And you have this kind of image of witchcraft as this barely controllable feminine power mm-hmm. that's always dangerous to men. And along those lines, uh, Circe, the, the sorceress from... The Odyssey, who I believe it's her who turns Odysseus's men into pigs. Indeed. And then also she seduces him, and he lives mm-hmm. with her for more than a year. So again, you have this connection between magic and sexuality and female power that is meant to make the male heroes of the epic uncomfortable, and for good reason, uh, because the, these witches destabilize male society. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a reason these witches become kind of feminist icons in a way, or proto-feminist icons, because, I mean, they they really are associated with that sort of anti-male, pro-female power way back in, way back in the uh, classical era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, well, one of, one of the things that... Uh, 
you know, is, is, is interesting to me as I'm hearing you guys talk is, is how many of these things have, have actually kind of remained stable, um, in, in, uh, in culture, uh, in spite of shifts, um, shifts in culture. Uh, also, also interesting to think of, uh, Medea as, um, would you say that she was the first maybe stage witch? Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? No, I mean um, the first dramatic presentation of of a witch on stage. Um, She's certainly an early one. I mean, I'm I'm not familiar enough with Greek tragedy to say whether there's anyone before her, but certainly she's among the first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because one of one of the things we'll be talking about, and not to scoop our, our, ourselves, but you know, one of the things that we're focusing has Michael like, left any ground unscorched. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, one one of the things that we're talking about is not just you know the idea of witches historically, but also the figure of witches literarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and Medea, to me at least, seems to cast a long shadow. Well, I just um, I just think of I just think of the Seneca play about her and how just completely out of control she is. Oh yeah, yeah. And 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 you read that, and and you know that when it was written, you were almost certainly supposed to be afraid of her. But mm. given what happens to her, it is very difficult to read that as a 21st century person and not identify with Medea instead of with Jason. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. Jason's a cad, and Medea is, yes, given over to these horrible emotions, but for very good reasons and reasons that we're probably a little more comfortable with than Seneca and his original audience would have been. Right, right. Well, and then in Euripides, I mean, Jason really is just a scumbag. Sure. Uh, but then, yeah. but then in Seneca's version, I think it's fascinating because when Seneca gets a hold of that character, he is utterly terrified of Medea. Oh yeah. So. But so, know, so, they, so is Euripides, right? Is it? Isn't it Medea where she's like, and I'm going to Athens next. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, when Jason comes on the stage in Euripides' version, Jason is just utterly clueless. I mean, he has no idea that this woman who murdered her own family members for him could ever turn on him. Yeah, I remember. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that, that he's he he kind of doesn't see it coming in a way that you're like, oh, he's a moron. (laughs) Yeah, but Euripides, Euripides loves to do that. He loves to take those. Greek heroes and turn them into, if not villains, just kind of doofuses. Yeah, yeah, and Jason fits into that latter category quite neatly. Euripides is the one who innovates or creates the innovation, rather that Medea murders her children. Right? That that's that's I not. I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. Him. But then that became standard. Mm-hmm. The the story's well, better that way. Yeah. Well, a lot of, a lot of what we have, a lot of the earliest texts that we have of. Um, of Greek mythology actually is the text of the plays themselves. Um, you know, with the, the, there there aren't necessarily you know kind of standard dramatic versions of a lot of these stories that that uh, that we have beyond the plays. Right. Um, you know, we ha- we'll have like allusions and hymns and things like that, mm-hmm. but um, but even then, that's mainly mainly to the gods. For someone right. like Medea, most well, and Oedipus, for that matter, the earliest stuff that we've got, I think, is in the plays. Yeah, because the um, Apollonius of Rhodes comes way after Euripides, and that's the that's the big 
epicish mm-hmm. retelling of the Jason and Medea story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's yeah. You know, even that is the <laughs> the novelization of the play. Can we say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far because there's so much more. I mean, Medea plays a relatively small. Uh, role in the Voyage of the Argo. The uh, I, I don't know if you want to call it an epic or what. It's not quite long enough to be an epic. Um, she doesn't. She's not in. She's not the main focus of that. Right. She's a plot device. Yeah. That, that's true. That's true. And and the whole notion of dramatic unities would preclude an epic play anyway. Right. Although mm-hmm. Euripides throws that all out the window anyway. <laughs> um. Anything we want to say about Romans in terms of witches? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump in here, Michael. I, I, one of my favorite Roman witches uh, comes from Apuleius, the the prose narrative writer. I'm always edgy about calling him a novelist because I, I, I understand that category to have been invented much later. Uh, but <laughs> in The Golden Ass or The Metamorphosis, depending on which, which title you're looking at, the Main character, Lucius, who is one of those great literary morons like we've been talking about, uh, <laughs> begins a love affair with a, a maidservant. And he comes to discover that she is, you know, that Fotis, that's her name, is maidservant to no ordinary lady but to a witch named Pamphila. And basically, uh, Junius talks her into, you know, getting her some of the magic that, you know, the mistress can use and. He discovers that the mistress, you know, very often uh, transforms herself into a bird so that she can fly to a neighboring city and have illicit love affairs and then fly back. And her husband is never the wiser for it. So, you know, Lucius says, oh, that's great, you know, to be transformed into a bird. So, Fotis, won't you get me some of that magic? Well, Fotis, who is no fool, unlike Junius or Julius, pardon me. Did I get that wrong name wrong twice? Yes, I did. Uh, but it, <laughs> Lucius, there we go. Golly. Uh, so when Lucius, you know, asks her for the potion, what she does is instead of putting in an eagle's feather, as the spell calls for, she takes a handful of the hair of an ass. And so for the rest <laughs> of the book, uh, because of this spell that is sabotaged by the jealous lover, uh, Lucius has to travel from city to city through various misadventures, trying to find someone to transform him from an ass back into a human. Uh, and what's fascinating is that the narrative concludes uh, with a ritual at the Temple of Osiris, which is another one of those underground quasi-magical societies. So it's definitely one of those narratives you know, that lets you see... Um, I mean, some of what's going on with, you know, the fear of magic, right? I mean, it's performed by a woman. It's done for the service of adultery. It's something that, you know, when people look for counterspells, they look to sort of quasi-forbidden Egyptian cults, uh, you mm. know, all over the place. In Apuleius, you see that fear of magic operative. I haven't read that book, so... I'm oh, it's it's a, it's it's a hoot to read. I mean, it's it's a fun little narrative. Uh, oddly enough, I actually got assigned it in a New Testament studies class in seminary. Huh? Really? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I you know, like I said, I mean, it's just a fun little book. <laughs> That's funny. I, I 
What? Why? Uh, honestly, just to give us a sense of some of the cultural richness that sort of standard historical critical New Testament studies books tend to miss. Uh, the oh. fact that, you know, when Paul goes on his voyages, this is the culture that he's traveling around in. A culture where, you know, women cast spells so they can turn into birds and have adulterous relationships. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, um, segueing not so neatly from that, <laughs> I don't suppose we have any witches in the New Testament we want to hit before we shift on, do we? Or oh, are there? goodness. Well, I mean, there is a girl in Acts who is possessed of a spirit. She does not control the spirit, but she is able to tell fortunes. That's one that immediately comes to mind. Paul, uh, Paul forbids witchcraft in Galatians. Right, and then in Revelation, among the list of curses, among those cursed are those who practice sorcery. Are there any others that we need to hit there? Oh, I mean, the, the, I, I think you, 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 you've gone beyond anything that had occurred to me, but again, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm never really quite sure what's lying behind that in terms of you know, the cultural significances of the terms that are being translated, it, and yeah. It, it would have to be subtext, but I mean, surely some of Jesus's political and religious opponents must have thought he was a sorcerer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, I mean, there are uh, polemical anti-Christian writings that you know ascribe to Jesus sorcerous powers rather but, than miraculous but, ones. But that just goes mm -hmm. to show you that the difference between miracle and sorcery is which side you're standing on. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, it's like the, uh, oh, when they accuse him of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub. Yes, yes. I, I suppose that would be, you know, that, that basically the first century Judaism equivalent of pointing a finger and going, witch! Yeah, precisely, precisely. <laughs> okay. Well, um, but let's uh, shift on to a period in which we can actually start pointing fingers and saying, which um, we've, we've already seen how there are powerful stories and literary texts that are shaping um, our cultural notions of witches. Um, we've already mentioned a lot of them in, in, in the classical world. Um, so I'm going to toss some more texts into the hopper. So Nathan, um, if you could tell us about the secret black and midnight hags in Macbeth. Well, first of all, I mean, as far as the classical tropes, I mean, these are women who use strange ingredients to brew magical potions and see the, see the future. Uh, I mean, they've got all of the classical markings of that sort of borderland dark power uh, that we inherit from the classical world. Uh, they also, mm. at one point in the play, summit Hecate, uh, the Greek sorcery goddess that Michael already referred to. Um, what I find fascinating about them in that text in particular, though, uh, is that there is a deep and abiding ambiguity to what they are doing so that they, on one hand, become a satanic figure and on the other hand, become a sort of Delphic oracle. Mm. So on the Delphic side first, I mean, they're predictions of things are almost always have that deep ambiguity that you associate with the Delphic Oracle in Herodotus, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The things that they say are true, but not in the way that you expect. 
uh, and the things that seem impossible to be true uh, come true in ways that you couldn't have anticipated. Uh, so the, there's that threatening ambiguity to them. They also turn out to be satanic figures insofar as they do not turn Macbeth into a newt uh, <laughs> so much as they present before him temptations that seem to be drawn from his own soul. Mm. Uh, he has an ambitious nature that he has kept disciplined because he is a good thing. Uh, but what they do is they bring it out in the open and let it develop its own crime and you know when he murders his king uh the witches are not present for that event rather he is doing that on his own accord uh Hmm. so i mean it's really a fascinating transformation of the witch it's not something that you'd find in apuleius where you know the plot events are driven by the acts of the witches instead the witches give macbeth himself an occasion to make the plot happen um so again, I mean, it, it, you know, what's fascinating about Shakespeare is not that he's aware of the classical world, but the way that he spins the classical world, and this is no exception to that. Uh, Michael, is there anything that you'd want to add to that Macbethery? Well, that that line between predicting the future and determining the future is very, very thin and blurry mm-hmm. with uh, with those with those hags. Mm-hmm. You also, I, I was just thinking about this while you were talking. Um, there's not so much the sexual component there, is there? Oh, it depends on what production you're watching. Gotcha. I mean, <laughs> they are called hags. I don't they know are, that it's in the text. They <laughs> are, but I, I, have, I have seen a version of Macbeth. I mean, it was on video. I didn't see it on stage where the witches were decidedly seductive figures, even if they weren't conventional, you know, Parthenon, you know, beauties. Makes sense. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, in some productions, I mean, they are sort of your um, Monty Python, Sir Bedivere scene, witches with long noses and warts. But, and this is, the era, this is the era when the witch stops being so much a seductress and starts being a warty hag, right? Right, right. Although, I mean, I, I think, and I mean, David, you're a medievalist, I think there are traces of the warty hag even in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yeah, that, it, it's not an entirely novel thing, but the uh, it, it it is enough of a departure from mm-hmm. from from the classical um, way of talking about it. I mean, you'll you'll find more references to, um, you know, I, I'm I'm aware of more references to Circe um, in old English texts than I am to more conventional. You know, maybe what, whatever kind of witches they knew of at the time. Whatever. Oh, okay, okay. You know, I, I don't know of a lot of references to them outside of condemnations and sermons, mm-hmm. or, or or laws against it. Um, the literary figure of the witch, for Alfred the Great at least, is Circe. You know, turning men into beasts. So that that seductiveness is still there. But you know, I'm wondering maybe by the time you hit to shape, get to Shakespeare the kind of thing that was all too familiar um, in especially the early middle ages into the middle ages of that, you know, the eccentric old lady who, who can give you an edge on life with her, um, with her potions and her chants and so forth mm-hmm. um, becomes enough of a figure of fiction, not a figure of, I don't know, legal 
legal censure that it starts to work its way into the story. Maybe. <laughs> Though I think I remember I, I, I need I need to read I need to read um, the Golden Ass all the way through because I've seen it cited as mm-hmm. a, as a text that alludes to hag witches, but I don't think it's in the central plot. And oh goodness, I yeah. And I and when I was I reviewing it, it, yeah, I only read the scenes with uh, Lucius and Photus. I didn't read the description of uh, the main witch, so I don't yeah. remember. Yeah, I, I've I've seen it I've seen it referenced, but I'm not familiar enough with the text to be able to say whether or not it was referenced accurately or what part of it was relevant. But I think I remember old lady witches being a thing before before the Middle Ages too, but not the most prominent thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, def- definitely the sexy witches were dominating before that. You know, if we can say that witchy woman. Yes. <laughs> well, um, well, we'll shift our revelry here. Um, it was Volpergus Noct that originally um, got us onto this topic. Um, so we'll camp out there a bit. Probably the most um, most famous representation of uh, a witch's sabbat uh, or a Volpergus Noct uh, is in Goethe's Faust, uh, when Faust actually gets to visit one. Um, what kind of thing goes, goes down at, you know, the annual witch parties in the, I guess it's the Alps. Well, I had never, ever heard of this before you said something, (laughs) nor Um, have I ever read Faust. Oh, okay. So I'm going to do my best and then I will let you fill in those gaps. Um, it is, it is the day before May 1st, as you say, it's April 30th. And it is the corollary to, oh, I believe, All Hallows' Eve, right? It's it's six months from Halloween, and mm-hmm. so it, it's kind of the unbirthday, half birthday <laughs> uh, for Halloween. Hip, and the, hipster the, the, Halloween. There you go. <laughs> the, the the witches gather together and pray to their goddesses, and you know, do the sorts of things witches do. And my understanding is it shows up in. Faust is a kind of distraction for the title character. Um, Mephistopheles takes Faust to Walpurgisnacht in order to keep him from thinking about... I believe his girlfriend is in danger. Is that, is mm-hmm. that accurate? Mm-hmm. Um, to mm-hmm. kind of distract him with the, again, sexuality of the witch community. Yeah, you want to pitch in? You want to pitch in here, Nathan? Yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually teach uh, Goethe's Faust uh, every other fall, so I'm teaching it this coming semester. During the Walpurgisnacht uh, celebration, I mean, in Goethe's version, uh, what you get is this sort of farcical parade of ideas, and you know, you can tell it is Goethe, the great intellectual, making fun of all of his contemporaries. Uh, so what you get is, you know, the uh, alchemist dancing with the physical scientist and you get the priest dancing with the witch and you get, you know, all of these sorts of things. And they have a little pageant that they put on for, uh, Faust. And, you know, it, it's one of those things, um, where, you know, if the central plot of, you know, Goethe's Faust is that, you know, Goethe is, or rather Mephistopheles rather, uh, is trying to, 
bring Faust to a point where he is happy with life, Valpurgis Noct is sort of a sidetrack where, you know, he sort of throws a, a, tries to shoot a lucky shot. I'll put it that way. You know, maybe this, uh, great festival of magic will, you know, satisfy him. It ends up not satisfying him, of course. Uh, but as David said, it distracts him from the fact that back in the town, uh, his young lover, Gretchen, uh, is being basically put on trial because, you know, she has been accused of, uh, killing her family. Uh, which we know that, you know, Faust and Mephistopheles were involved with. Uh, mm. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, this crazy, subversive, farcical party is going on while very, very serious plot events are happening off stage. So that's really where the tension of that scene comes across in Goethe's poem. David, is there anything else that you'd want to add to that? Well, I'm I'm just trying to think of you know what what kinds of things have, have popped into the culture, you know, or kind of part of the part of the broader cultural consciousness of of witches and the notion of a witch's sabbat, or of a you know that that kind of revelry is one of those um, is one of those big images, and I think Faust is one of the, the one of the major ones over the years. Though the one I grew up with was well the night on Bald Mountain scene in Fantasia, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know, I, I, when, when I when I got to Volpertus, the Volpertus Knox scenes in uh, in Faust, all I could think of was uh, Night on Bald Mountain. Interesting. Yeah, I that you know I, I, when I went went back and watched it, I was like, they're not exactly, they're not, not super similar, but nonetheless, the that that tone seemed to be there at least to me. But maybe that's because that scene stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, um, if we, we're, we'll, we'll shift from sabbats to t- trials. Um, if, if, if you're talking about witches, you got to talk about witch trials. And if you're talking about witch trials, you got to talk about Salem, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm guessing that most people um well if they have that the a lot of the the uh conventional knowledge about the Salem witch trials has uh, has come into the public consciousness at least through the filter of Arthur Miller if not through the direct reading of Arthur Miller's Crucible mm-hmm. um so what kind of contribution does Miller add well first of all uh as I'm sure every English teacher who's ever taught this play has noted uh, this is a thinly veiled allegory for uh, the Red Scare of of the mid-20th century in the United States. Uh, The witch trials in Salem are being used as an allegory for uh, the witch hunt, in scare quotes, of Communist Party members. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one of the things about uh, this play is that it plays on really, I mean, the confused nature of witch lore, right? Uh, What do people know about witches? The answer is everyone knows a little bit of something, but nobody can make a system of it. Uh, And this comes across very strongly in the first couple scenes of the play where uh, as people are put under pressure uh, and as one by one they crack and start confessing, each one confesses to a strangely goofy but different thing. 
Uh, I've made blood covenants. I've promised to persecute Christians. I have engaged in sexual intercourse with the devil. I have uh, sacrificed cats. I have, you know, basically, you know, there is no common thread that links all of this witchery together. Uh, but the, com- you know, the common thread is not in the witchcraft itself, but it's in the fear of witchcraft. So in all hmm. of these cases, uh, as soon as they confess to something that is unconventional uh, and scary, uh, then automatically the assumption is that they've got you know a, a demonic spirit and they're engaging in witchcraft. Uh, now, what's fascinating about this is that you know your central character in the in the Crucible, John Proctor, uh, is someone who, first of all, thinks that the the one who sort of started the witch fever is a liar. Uh, and he knows for a fact because he's had an illicit affair with her before the play starts. Uh, and he is very, very willing to expose her lies. But she is a crafty enough character that she basically manages to harness the fear of witches, turn it against not only him, but also his family, also his current household help. Uh, she is able basically to destroy everything around him. Uh, as an act of revenge. So what's ironic is, in the metaphysics of the drama, if you will, there doesn't appear to be anything to witchcraft. It all appears to be lies and confusion and all that sort of thing. And yet, there is a subversive female character at the center of it who nonetheless is wielding disproportionate power over the lives of the men around her. So in some sense, there is an invention of a kind of witchcraft that occurs in the vacuum where the traditional classical witchcraft would have existed. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so I mean that, you know, uh, I hadn't read this play probably for goodness, 15, maybe 18 years before I reviewed it for today's episode. Uh, but it's really fascinating what it does with the idea of power. Uh, because, you know, in the classical world, that's what witchcraft is all about. And that's something that Miller really manages to recover in this play. Did you like that play, Nathan? Uh, I don't like it as much as I like All My Sons. I don't like it as much as I like Death of a Salesman. I mean, it it comes across to me as sort of preachy and heavy-handed. Yeah, it's very Uh, strident. But, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, uh, depending on what you want to call it, either the intellectual tools that new historicism has given me or the psychic scars that new historicism has left on me, allowed me to read it as a cultural artifact that's fascinating in its own right. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I loved, that, I loved that play in high school when I went back and read it a couple of years ago. I was surprised how much I disliked it. Hmm. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned that before. You mentioned that before, Michael. Um, I, 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 wondered, I wondered, too, and you're, you're probably the one that can best help me here. Um, because I don't, I don't have a good sense of how differently the witch trials were thought about before before that play. Um, I, I, you know, I get it. I, I kind of have the feeling that 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 plays um, association of the witch trials with, um, you know, with the Red Scare. Um, uh, it's it's still with us. They still talk about you know witch trials in the Senate or witch trials in the media, and mm-hmm. I, and I, I feel like this is this is where that's coming from. But you know, 
in in American lit before Arthur Miller, I mean, how were they talking about Salem? Well, I I would think that association would already have to be there because Miller is really playing on it to make his point about the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I, I can't think of a major presentation of the actual witch trials before that. I mean, you get Hawthorne and the Puritans, and he treats the Puritans with distaste. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, young Goodman Brown is really sort of the middle term yeah, yeah. between Goethe and Miller. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to say, I mean, do we want to we want to bring young Goodman Brown in this conversation? I mean, I, had, I hadn't originally included it, but that was because I was just sort of ranging far and wide. <laughs> My least favorite of Hawthorne's major stories, but I mean, and the it, most anthologized, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it involves a you know a young Puritan who becomes uh, obsessed with the idea that the other the other people in his village are witches, and he goes out into the woods and sees something that may or may not be real, and it may or may not indict everybody in the town, and I don't know. I, I like uh, I like Hawthorne more when he's ambivalent toward the Puritans. Oh, see, that's <laughs> fascinating because I, I love teaching that story precisely because of the ambivalence. Because I, what I like to do, and the, this reveals my own, you know, sociopathology more than anything, but I like to argue <laughs> my students to the point where they say, all right, it cannot be other than there really are witches and he has had an encounter with them. And then I argue them all the way the other way. This has to be his delusion, and it can't be otherwise. And then when they ask me, so which one is it really, I just grin devilishly. Well, I mean, there's ambiguity in the story, but I would say overall it is negative toward Puritans. Okay, okay. Whereas mm-hmm. a story like, um, and this is, we're going a little far afield, but the, the Minister's Black Veil, for example. Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. It re- really does have ambivalence toward the entire Puritan way of life. Mm-hmm. There's a sense mm-hmm. there that well he may have a point you know it, it may be that they're not Puritan enough so but anyway yeah I and I find Young Goodman Brown less strident than The Crucible where there really is no moral ambiguity whatsoever no, and, no. and you know there's there's a reason for that he he's writing it for an explicit political purpose where ambiguity would not have served him well mm-hmm. right right but uh, that is an argument for reading that play. Not in high schools, right? I mean that that that's a, that's an argument <laughs> for letting that play fall to history. Leave it, leave it for the new historicist, and let the rest of us move <laughs> on with our lives. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we'll shift to something that you like a little better, Michael. Um, it, it, we ought to say something about fairy tale witches. Um, in fact, the fact that we haven't up to this point probably reveals more about the idiosyncrasy of my ordering of this conversation than anything else. Um, but I, still, I think it is kind of fair to bring it in at this point because most of us have encountered fairy tale witches not by reading, you know, the actual Grimm Brothers stories, but by reading or by um, watching Disney versions as children. So. Um, how grim is Disney? How 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 well have we received this fairy tale witch? Well, I you know I have actually never read the original Grimm's fairy tales, but I can talk about our cultural encounter with witches being mostly the Disney thing because I, I would say the 
most common view of witches nowadays doesn't come from the Grimm's and it doesn't come from Goethe and it doesn't it certainly doesn't come from Homer. It doesn't even come from Shakespeare. It comes from the Wicked Witch from uh, Snow White, mm-hmm. who is genuinely terrifying. Except what what you what we forget about is the the image of the witch we think of is actually a disguise. She she becomes mm-hmm. ugly so that the the uh, so that Snow White won't suspect what she really is. So, I mean, Mm. it's our misremembering of the Snow White movie that has led to the kind of haggy witch, um, because really what you have there is a borderline sexualized, beautiful witch who uses the powers of the natural world for her own benefit. Mm. I mean, and she's obviously not the only witch in... um, in the Disney canon, I'm also thinking of uh, Maleficent, who is also kind of eerily beautiful until she turns into the giant dragon. I'm thinking of the sea witch, who it was not at all beautiful, but who seems to be modeled mostly after a faded Shakespearean actress more than anything. The sea witch <laughs> from uh, The Little Mermaid. Mm. Right, although her musical number, I mean, is decidedly sexualized, even if she is not, you know, a beautiful stage or screen presence. Yeah, that's. I remember being made vaguely uncomfortable by that when I was a kid. <laughs> I remember being more than vaguely uncomfortable about that when I was a kid. Well, I, I watched it recently with my son, and it's more than a little bit uncomfortable. Nice. You know, and then the other big source, of course, is the Wicked Witch of the West. Oh right. yeah. Who, who again is is pretty much everything we think of a witch as being, and she's set off against the uh, is Glinda the Good Witch of the North or the Good Witch of the South? Who cares? Glinda the Good Witch, the very boring Good Witch, <laughs> is is beautiful, and so you get that weird kind of double mindedness about witches in that movie. Is in addition to the the Disney films where witches take both forms. Although, if you think about the plot line, she is kind of gangster. Yeah, I mean, she she's got an enemy, but she doesn't go take it, take her out herself. She sends a hitman. Well, that's true. <laughs> and in fact, she doesn't even commission the hit herself. She sends her to the wizard who actually sends her on the hit. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, that, 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 that good witch is a, a debatably good. <laughs> well, I think Wicked threw that into a uh, question once and for all. <laughs> and see, I've never, I've never seen Wicked, so I... I it's I, very I good. I'm any... sure there'll be a film version before too long. Oh, I'm sure there will be, yeah. I'm surprised there isn't. Yeah, it's taken a while. Anyway, Wheel. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think those are the two sources where most of our pop cultural feelings about witches come from. At least up until Harry Potter, where I don't know. It, it, it really even that's not. I don't think that plays a major role in how people think about witches in pop culture. Mm-hmm. As much of a phenomenon as that series was. Yeah, yeah, I I don't know anybody that's like, you know, I'm going to dress up like a witch for Halloween and that means I need to call I mean I need to don one of those stripy Gryffindor Gryffindor scarves. Yeah, and more likely <laughs> they'd say I'm going to dress up as Hermione or Harry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so I mean, right. I guess I guess the the reason that book failed to change the pop cultural representation of witches is its characters were too strong. They weren't they weren't archetypal enough. Whereas the Wicked Witch of the West barely has a personality beyond cackling. 
Well, and and really, I don't think there's a very strong as- association in Harry Potter with w- witches per se, so much as just magic generally. Well, and you hear wizard much more often, although you know they do use the word witch. Mm-hmm. It's in the name. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Well, well, uh, th- there's also a middle term here that that I think we need to get into, um, which adds to Christian uncomfortability which is namely the way the word witch has been appropriated by um, kind of neo or neo-pagan or reconstructed paganism um, in the, oh, I th- well, ma- mainly in the 20th century is when, uh, it, it's mm-hmm. at least to me, it seems like this is happening. Right. So uh, how, how much has, has the Wiccan shaped our, our notion of witchcraft and pop culture, Nathan? Well, I mean, the the phenomenon of uh, Wiccan traditions, I mean, is just fascinating sociologically because what you've basically got is a reclaiming of a category that, as we've already discussed, I mean, all the way back to Babylonian Code of Hammurabi times um, is something that is marginal, that is scary, that is, you know, forbidden. Uh, And, you know, the Wiccan tradition basically takes that and says, all right, let's make that our tradition. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's no coincidence that, you know, the 20th century also sees the rise of the Church of Satan. Uh, I mean, this really is, uh, you know, the century in which the three of us were born is the century where uh, people start claiming these traditionally uh, adversarial characters as morally central. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, and obviously, I mean, there's roots with the English romantics before that. I don't, I don't want to claim that they, it, it came out of nowhere. Uh, but, you know, the Wiccan tradition, you know, arises largely in England, uh, where people start reconstructing uh, some of the traditions of the witches and, and specifically the druids of ancient England. Uh, they start, you know, labeling themselves as practitioners of a sort of earth worship tradition. And they link it to those earlier forbidden things, specifically because uh, it is in opposition to the more traditional religions that tended to put witches on the margins. So, you know, these are, in my experience, and, you know, you guys can comment on this, these are the obnoxious girls in your high school class uh, who every Christmas say, well, of course, it was the Yule log before this, uh, you know, as if their tradition extended back past 1920. Right. Um, And, you know, it is, like I said, I mean, more broadly than that, you also have, you know, among sort of, I don't even know what to call that tradition. I mean, sort of a a reconstructionist Judaism. You have the reclamation of the figure of Lilith from uh, Talmudic legend. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have, you know, just all over the place, sort of the reclamation of these largely feminine images uh, that are on the margins of the older religion. So uh, in, in some respect, I mean, it's understandable, like I said, sociologically, because this is uh, the feminist impulse extended into religion, right? I mean, it is the mm-hmm. grabbing hold of those feminine figures uh, for the sake of spiritual devotion. Now, I mean, you know, because I am incorrigibly historicist, uh, you know, I think that it's fine as a resistance movement, uh, but I am, I am 
the first one to get in line to ridicule anyone who wants to say that sort of modern Wiccan traditions are somehow older than medieval Christianity. They, they just simply aren't. What was happening in the third century AD in Britain uh, is lost in brief mentions in Roman history books. There is no going back to that. What we've got is very much a rhetorical act reclaiming a few phrases for the sake of a very modern ideology. Couldn't have said it better myself. Anything anything you want to toss in here, Michael? No. I, I mean, I, I, I Nathan obviously knows this material much better than I do. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I don't have anything to add. Yeah. Um. Well, what's funny to well, not 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 funny. What's interesting to me though is is how often this notion of like an ancient goddess worship of the the really kind of uh, femi- feminine spirituality aspect mm-hmm. of of Wicca, um, how much that shows up even in um, well things like uh, I, I mean I think it's argue- arguably there in you know. Buffy episodes, or yeah, um, you know the, the the you know shows these days with like you know hot young witches, you know right right, um, where it's 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 kind of the 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 blending the blending of those elements, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I blame sociology, <laughs> <laughs> just um, in general. No, yeah, just in general. No, uh, there was a um, there was a book um, published in the teens twenties called the witch the the witch cult in Western Europe by oh wish I could remember her name Margaret something anyway witch cult in Western Europe that that basically made the argument that that the medieval witches who were being persecuted were in fact the underground remnants of a prehistoric fertility cult. Oh goodness. <laughs> and that um that apparently caught on not in sociology but in um in almost popular sort of fictional circles. You know, so right. that you know, some of this early 20th century reconstructionist paganism is taking as their thesis, you know, this, this woman's idea pretty much got debunked later on, but that was as, you know, that was as much excuses as some folks needed. (laughs) And by Um, the way, just because I came across as a little bit strident when I first attacked this, David, uh, mm -hmm. I've got nothing against the reappropriation of historical phenomena in order to forge ahead and do new things intellectually. We've got a yeah. big picture of Erasmus on our website's banner, for pity's sake. Exactly. <laughs> you know. But, but uh, you, have, you have to be honest about what, where you stand historically. Precisely. You've got to be a self-conscious and rhetorically aware appropriator. This is, this uh, is why your head explodes when the Orthodox talk about how their worship services haven't changed since the time of Christ. Oh, Michael, you're going to get me started. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they probably haven't Um, changed that much since the 11th century, which is, you know, that's something. And probably not even since, you know, Chrysostom, but yeah, I... (laughs) 
you really are going to get me rolling here. I'm going to get in trouble with every constituent that listens to us. <laughs> the, well, the, am... the Wiccans and the Orthodox will be united against us. <laughs> well, I am, I am going to at least step in and stem one thing, which you did not say this, but before uh-huh. anyone pretends like you do, you did not say that Wiccans are Satanists. You simply saw the two as parallels of oh, absolutely, marginal, yeah. marginal figures for the for the purpose of embracing marginal spiritual figures. Right, as right, and like I said, figures. Yeah, and I mean the roots are <laughs> in the English Romantic tradition, right? I mean yeah. that's where you get William Blake saying that Milton was of the Devil's Party without knowing it. That's where you yeah. get Prometheus Unbound. That's where you get you know. Uh, sort of this new rise of the marginal figure as the hero. And, you know, that carries on in uh, to, like I said, I mean, and these are not synonymous. They are not the same thing, but modern (laughs) Satanist movements, modern Wiccan movements, uh, you know, those sorts of things, I mean, have similar roots. Tarot Mm -hmm. cards for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That section of the, Barnes and Noble bookstore marked metaphysics, which always has me thinking I might find an Aristotle book, but I never do. <laughs> well, the, the funny thing about tarot cards that that's actually um, that's actually really funny too, because a lot of the uh, oh, a lot of the traditional or a lot of the images that you'll see in tarot decks now um, are are actually no older than. Uh, the 20s, I think. Well, the drowned um, Phoenician sailor, I know, was in, was introduced in 1922. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, uh, but things like calling the card the the hierophant, or um, you know, th- things like that. Previously, um, they had names that were drawn from uh, medieval Catholicism. The hierophant was the bishop, or or the, or the pope card. You know, there was an intentional an intentional move to paganize tarot cards. Mm-hmm. T- tarot cards were just playing cards during the the Renaissance, from my understanding, and then it's not until the 19th century that they're used to tell fortunes. Right, right, and and as long as we're playing MythBusters here, Gregorian chant is probably no older than 19th century. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they've traced it back, and I mean, it, it's largely an innovation of uh, sort of a monastic revival in 19th century France. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we know that there was such a thing, that there was a thing called Gregorian chant, but right, I don't know. but the form know. that you buy on CDs or download right. from iTunes, I guess, wow, how 90s am I, uh, <laughs> is more than likely the sort of polyphonic chant music that was largely developed in the 19th century now i have mm-hmm. i have about 20 tracks of non polyphony chant mm-hmm. would that would that be uh would that be more than likely that'd be older yeah okay. I, yeah. and beyond that i'm not going to speculate because i didn't research it well, I, but I yeah know. and yeah and again just to return to the point you know i and <laughs> just in case people didn't hear me the first time i am all about appropriating juicy bits of historical fun, right? Uh, You know, I refer to myself as a Christian humanist, (laughs) you know, uh, that kind of has 16th century roots, right? Uh, But again, I mean, I think that, you know, the historical consciousness has to be there. And if it's Mm -hmm. not, I mean, it does become something that is 
at the very least risible. Mm-hmm. Well, it's particularly when the the histor the, the 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 claim ends up being made that you know not only is this old but it is older than X. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then you 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 start having um, novel movements making these very old fashioned claims of religious superiority based on you know historical priority and and just ain't so right and 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 that's and that's no commentary on whether or not they are true beautiful or useful (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's you know it's just to say you know your lineage goes back thus far and not further than we can tell and yeah any who's well i guess we better round this out um I'm going to begin where we started for our grand finale. So if I may return to the, uh, what the scripture says about witches today, given given all of these different factors and shaping what witch, what, 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 what witch signifies now and all the rest of that, um, how, what would taking seriously what, what uh, scripture says about witches... Uh, what what would that look like now? I mean, does it look like stoning Harry Potter? Does it look like setting the tarot card section on fire? Um, you know, what what does it look like? It definitely doesn't have anything to do with Harry Potter, which, I mean, those books exist in an alternate universe and are actually, I think if you look at what they're actually doing, they are rather profoundly Christian, at least as much as the Lord of the Rings books are, which also mm. have magic in them, of course. Also have of course. wizards. Um... I'm going to appeal to a distinction Peter Kreeft makes between religion and magic. And he says, religion is about submitting yourself to the forces that govern the universe, supernatural forces. And magic is about controlling the forces. Um, And he says the scientific equivalent of magic is actually technology, Mm -hmm. um, which in its most debased forms is all about controlling the world rather than kind of being part of the world and I would say if you want to take the scriptural prohibitions against witchcraft seriously we all need to rethink the way we think about technology and and the way hmm. we think about the, the world around us that, you know as as for whether there is real magic in the world now or ever I don't know I'm agnostic on that question but I know that I know that a a Related point can be made regarding technology and our our attitudes toward it. Man, that's like a whole nother episode. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> Nathan? And I'll just point out before I go that we have done an episode on cybernetics where we made very similar arguments. So listeners, go back and listen to that one. Uh, but I would say that a couple things. First of all, uh, piggybacking on what Michael said, if you want to see really the paradigmatic modern witchcraft story, don't look to Harry Potter, but look to Jurassic Park. Uh, because that's where a solitary egomaniac finds a secluded island that is unreachable by the civilized world and uses powers at his disposal, even against the objections of 
you know, um, Jeff Goldblum, I forget the character's name. <laughs> Ian Malcolm. <laughs> Thank you, Ian Malcolm, uh, to make nature do his bidding. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, in my mind, Jurassic Park is the, the paradigmatic witchcraft story of the 20th century. Uh, now, as far as the witches as we see them uh, in the scriptures and the Renaissance and those sorts of places... Uh, I think that they, I'm, I'm going to differ slightly from Michael and say that they are related to what we see in those texts, uh, or Harry Potter is related to what we see in those texts, sorry. Uh, but that, you know, we need to understand that every witch narrative is something that we need to regard in its historical moment. So mm -hmm. whereas the, uh, the weird women of Shakespeare uh, are definitely sort of the powers of darkness that exist on the scary margins of things. Uh, the kids at Hogwarts are basically gifted students. <laughs> you know, I mean, they have abilities that other children don't, and they are learning to cope with them, even as they cope with being normal adolescents in other ways. Uh, so, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I am happy for my son to watch the Harry Potter movies when he gets a little bit older, I will almost certainly have him read the Harry Potter books. Uh, and, you know, because they are that sort of fantasy allegory, uh, rather than being a manual for how to do these things, I think that they are very, very good for what I would call the moral formation that fiction offers, and especially fantasy fiction. So uh, don't stone Harry Potter. He's just that nerdly kid in your math class. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna agree with, uh, I'm gonna agree with you guys on this. I, I don't think that following, um, following the scriptural, uh, warnings against, uh, against witchcraft, um, necessarily means, um, boycotting those representations of what our culture calls witches and it's, and it's in the popular, in the popular culture. Um, in fact, um, I think that, that that can be enough of a distraction that, um, you know, we could end up violating the command in spirit while we follow it in letter. Um, you know, the important thing is not whether someone calls themselves a W-I-T-C-H. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to tap into, um, you know, what you pointed out earlier, Nathan, which is the idea of. Uh, attempting to uh, attempting to access supernatural power by by other means, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, well, and and your notion, uh, your 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 idea, uh, Michael, which uh, Nathan I think alluded to too, with the uh, Jurassic Park, the idea of uh, humans trying to hack reality, mm -hmm. um, in some sense, whether you're hacking it magically or hacking it technologically. Um, you know, I, I think that there that there are ways that our culture promises to do just that. Um, shortcuts to better lives. Um, you know, religious uh, religious practices that promise um, a leg up in your, uh, you know, get God's ear by doing these things, or you know, think positively in order to make this stuff happen for you, or or whatever. Um, I think that there are ways that we could, you know try that kind of technique <laughs> to get an, an, a leg up on life. 
um, that don't involve um, turning to the God who made the world and giving him his due. So, yeah, don't burn Harry Potter. Look to your own soul. (laughs) (laughs) Wheel that spring 2013 um, and our wrap of the 2012-2013 school year. Um, what's, what's, what's up next? We will, we will have an episode sometime in June and it will be on the medieval era. We're finally doing an episode on something one of us is an expert in. Woohoo! And since I know the least about the medieval era, I'm going to ask the questions then get out of the way. (laughs) And then after that, we're going to have an episode. It might not be a summer episode, (laughs) but sometime early in the fall on Dr. Michael Farmer's dissertation. So listeners, you have those two things at the very least. To look forward to. Woohoo! Um, in the meanwhile, I assume some bloggy activities will be continuing. Um, your uh, your epic project with the epistemological work, the name of which I've forgotten, is that that that's this summer. Truth and method. Thank you. That I, I, I it's it's like. I remember it's like two words that are so normal that neither of them have have hold on my mind. <laughs> um, it's like a theology text entitled "God and Faith." <laughs> anyway, um, well, you have those things to look forward to. Uh, in the meanwhile, if uh, if we've left your favorite witch out. Or if you think we're radically, uh, if if you think we're just a little bit too uh, uh, rosy spectacled about uh, the threat of Harry Potter, or if you're a Wiccan who feels insulted, um, you can let us know by posting on our Facebook page. Uh, you can also post comments on the show notes when the uh, when show notes post on our blog. Uh, christianhumanist.org slash chb you uh, can also send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com in the meanwhile I I wish you all well a good rest of May and a good going on into your summer Um, and don't uh, don't forget to come back and look for us again uh, when you know during our special summer episodes and when things get back in back in a full swing in the fall. And I'll leave you with words of Luther. This is David Grubbs on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer telling you to let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. 